If you're visiting with us this morning, on Sunday mornings we're, visit, we're uh, studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And we pick things up in Luke chapter 14, verse 15. And while we're turning there, it's always good to be reminded next Sunday we'll be, uh, Sunday morning, have a, a Christmas message. And uh, so many folks increasingly don't have any idea what Christmas is about or why a Savior was sent and why a Savior is needed and all those things and we'll try and make that clear next week and so it's always a good week to invite someone that doesn't know the Lord and see what the Lord might do. Luke's Gospel chapter 14 verse 15. Now when one of those who sat at the table with Jesus heard these things he said to Jesus, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to all those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I have, am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. And still another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. And so the servant came and reported these things to his master. The master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it's done as you commanded, and still there is room. And then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who are invited shall taste my supper. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. We always thank you for it, because we're amazed at the fact that we can take our minds and set them on something so safe and so holy and so enriching and true is your word. And we thank you, Lord, that this book is a living book and we've experienced it in our lives. And we pray, Lord, for a work of your living Holy Spirit in this room this morning through this living word to touch each one of our lives as you see we have need. Been with every one of us, Lord, lost our first tooth, first day we tried to ride a bicycle, first day our heart was broken. You've been all along, Lord, all the way through today. And you know what we need to hear from your throne today, each one of us. And we pray that you help us to hear your voice through your word this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The context of this teaching of Jesus, or this parable of Jesus that we're looking at this morning, is that Jesus has been invited to a, a dinner by a ruler of the Pharisees. The dinner that he's been invited to, that invitation is not an honest invitation. It isn't wasn't extended to Jesus because of any affection on the heart of this Pharisee toward Jesus. The whole thing is a setup. It's a trap. The religious leaders of the Jews here, even almost three and a half years since the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, are still trying to find a single fault with him. 
A single reason for rejecting his claim to be the promised Jewish Messiah, the promised Savior of the world, his claims to be the very Son of God. For three and a half years they've come up empty, but they don't stop trying. And they brought him into this room now in an attempt to find some cause of wrongdoing on his part, some reason to reject him and his claims. And they have planted a man with a disease known as dropsy in the room, and this man is seated near Jesus' table. Jesus is not sitting at the head tables in the room, he is sitting at the lowest tables, where men who have dropsy also sit. And they were wondering about Jesus and what they were trying to find to trap him related to was would he heal this man of his dropsy on the Sabbath day in violation of their interpretation of the law of Moses related to what could or could not be done on the Sabbath day. And so they watched him to find fault. Jesus proceeded to heal the man of his dropsy, and then he confronted the Jewish religious leaders who were present in that room. And you can notice there in verse uh, 3 it is, the room is filled with lawyers and Pharisees. These are the highest of the high of the Jewish religious leaders. This is a very august religious gathering and religious group of people. And he proceeded to... Uh, confront those Jewish religious leaders with their hypocrisy, specifically concerning their willingness to interpret the law of Moses in a way that allowed them to be gracious toward their animals. But when it came to interpreting the law of Moses in terms of how man was to treat their fellow man, they interpreted it very harshly. Uh, very legalistically, way beyond what God intended the law of Moses to be. And then Jesus, when he walked into that dinner, he noticed how everyone was clamoring and fighting for the best seats. And so he told them a parable known as the parable of the ambitious guest on how they ought not to compete and and vie for the, the greatest seats in a room, but that they ought to be willing to to take the lowest seat in any room that they enter into. And then finally Jesus instructed the host of the whole meal and he encouraged him to enlarge his future guest list for these dinners to include people that could not repay his invitation, who could never put enough food on a table to ever invite a guest from outside the home to come and eat. Don't forget those people, Jesus said, and don't forget to invite them to these feasts. And Jesus promised that if this Pharisee would do that, and he promises the same thing to us, that such a person would be, verse 14, repaid at the resurrection of the just. That is, that that act of kindness will one day be repaid by God in heaven. Well, the mention of heaven, the mention of the resurrection of the just, caused one of the religious leaders who was sitting there, listening to Jesus, verse 15, to cry out, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, eating bread in the kingdom of God was the equivalent of, of saying that one day I'm going... It spoke of eating a meal with God in heaven. It spoke of eating at the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven, the great banquet table of, 
God in heaven and one day being in heaven and fellowshipping with God in, in that way. And so it speaks of one day being in heaven, enjoying the bliss of heaven forever, having intimate fellowship with God forever. It speaks of a person being saved and on their way to heaven. Now, his statement is an interesting one that he makes because he makes it with great anticipation concerning that coming day. When he talks about this eating bread in the kingdom of God, he looks at that with anticipation. He looks at that with excitement. That's a pleasant thought to him because he assumes that both he and all of the other religious leaders in that room, that they are going to be there one day. That they are presently on their way to heaven. In their minds, if anyone was going to get into heaven, it was going to be the Jewish religious leaders. And uh, those, those were sure tickets that, that they had. Now, the glaring problem with this man's assumption is that he and everybody else in that room were currently rejecting Jesus as the Son of God, as the Savior of the world, as the promised Messiah of the Jews and of the world. And the problem with that is that Jesus is the only means of salvation, the only means of access into heaven. So that's a considerable problem to think that I am one day going to be in heaven while actively not only rejecting Jesus as they were, but they were plotting his death. And the religious leaders in that room, it's not just unique to them. They're deeply religious people today. There are many, many non-religious people today who are absolutely confident that one day they will end up in heaven despite the fact that they actively and openly reject the offer of salvation that God has made to them through His Son. Now clearly, where a person spends eternity is the one subject that you don't want to be mistaken about in all of life. You can make mistakes on stocks and pay a terrible price but the consequences aren't eternal we can make all kinds of decisions in life that can have tremendous consequences but the consequences are not eternal what we do with Christ but in terms of our decision of what we do with him that has an eternal consequence to it and so Jesus responds to this man's declaration by telling him in the presence of a whole room full of people that are just like him, a parable that is known as the parable of the Great Supper, so that no one would be mistaken about how to get to heaven and who's going to be in heaven. A parable, and Jesus used teaching through parables a lot in his ministry. Our word, English word parable comes from two Greek words, the word para and balo. Para means alongside. Balo means to throw. So parable, all it means is to throw alongside. It's a method of teaching. And what Jesus would do is he would take a physical something from life that they were all familiar with. They were all familiar with feasts. 
They were all familiar with invitations. They were all familiar with all of the imagery that Jesus gives in this parable. Knew like the back of their hands. So to use, do a parable is to take something that a person is familiar with, a physical thing, lay it alongside a spiritual thing that they're not familiar with in order to give them understanding of that spiritual thing. And that's what Jesus does here with this parable as with all of his parables. He tells us in verses 16 and 17 that a certain man gives an invitation to a great supper. What does all of this represent? Well, a certain man in the parable represents God. The great supper represents heaven. It represents fellowship with God in heaven. represents salvation. And this man, we're told in this parable, he provided a great supper. Even as the writer of the book of Hebrews declares to us that Jesus has provided us with so great a salvation. The invitation to come to the Great Supper represents the gospel. The knowledge of the means by which we can enter into heaven. Jesus declared the gospel in John 3.16 when he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, Jesus, that whosoever would believe in him or trust in him for salvation... Trust in his death upon the cross for our sins and his burial and his resurrection would not perish but have everlasting life. And we accept that invitation from God to one day be in heaven by putting our trust in Jesus, the Savior that he has sent into the world. Now one of the things that's very important to understand about this parable is that in Jesus' day, when you invited guests to a dinner, you told them the day, but you didn't tell them the hour. So you would send out an invitation to all of the people to come to the uh, particular great meal. You'd tell them what day it would happen on. Everyone would respond to your invitation. There would be an RSVP. He needed to know how many animals to butcher, how much food to prepare, and so you would say, yes, we're going to be there. And then he would say, you would mark it off on your calendar. That day is set aside for the feast at, at so-and-so's house. And then all during that day, you would simply be waiting for the master of the feast to send one of his servants to say, the meal is ready. Now come on over to enjoy the meal. That's how they ran feasts in, in those, uh, those days. Food preparation was different in those days. You couldn't just go anywhere and, 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 and buy it and put it out on a, on a table somewhere. And so here in this uh, parable, just before the feast was to begin, the host sent his servants out to tell the guests the banquet is ready and now it's time to come. And what's important to understand is that each of these guests in this parable had already agreed to attend the banquet. That was a done deal. And the master of the banquet expected them to be there. Now, notice that this invitation of this man to attend this feast is met with just wave after wave after wave of excuses for not coming. We won't call them reasons, because they're not reasons. They're not worthy of being called reasons. The, the reasons that are given are, you can hardly call them excuses, that they're so lame. 
But he sends out the invitation, and one by one, the invitation is met with a series of excuses. You notice excuse number one there. One of the, the first man says, I've bought a piece of land, and I must go and see it. Who in their right mind will buy a piece of land without having seen it? Nobody buys a piece of land without seeing it. No Gentile would do it. No Jew would do it. So the idea is, it's not only an excuse, it's a terrible excuse. It's a pathetic excuse. Excuse number two, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. Who in their right mind would buy five yoke of oxen and not go test them and know what you were buying? If a man could afford five yoke of oxen, that's the ability to have five different yoke of two oxen work in your fields. Number one, you've got to have a lot of land. You are a prosperous man. You're a wealthy man. You don't become wealthy and you don't stay wealthy if you don't examine your ox before you buy them. This man doesn't buy oxen without examining them. Any more than a farmer in this valley is going to buy a tractor online without seeing that tractor first to see what kind of condition it is. Would you buy a, a used car without taking a look at it? So you'd be crazy to do it. You would be crazy to do it. So it's a lame excuse that he gives here. There's no way in the world he was going to buy five yoke of oxen without examining them. The third excuse is also interesting. This man said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So bring her. How much does she eat? <laughs> What's with this wife of yours? And the whole idea is that when you read through the excuses is that you, that you would laugh at them. You'd look at them and say, what kind of crazy excuse? Who do they expect? How dumb does a person have to be to accept those as legitimate excuses? And the idea is that we would look at them and say, those are horrible excuses. Those are terrible excuses. Those are lame excuses. Now, I'm convinced that Jesus used these three excuses as examples because he knows that they are the prevalent reasons that heaven hears from people as their excuse for not accepting the gospel. Not accepting the salvation that God has offered through his Son. That's why it's in the Bible. If this was something that had nothing to do with us today, this was all about Jesus and a man and a room of religious people and it was all private, had nothing to offer us today, it wouldn't be in the book. It's in the book because those are the same three excuses that heaven hears over and over and over again in response to the offer of salvation all the way into our day and all the way to the last day in human history and all the way into this room. Now, the first man represents the person who declines God's offer of salvation on the basis of possessions. I'm too busy buying things right now. There's too many things that material possessions that I want to own before I give my life uh, to God. I'm uh, I'm too busy accumulating these material possessions. And it's the person who puts the love of material things ahead of the things of God. The second man represents the person who declines God's offer of salvation on the basis of commerce, on the basis of, of 
money-making. I can't get saved right now. I'm too busy making money right now. I'm too busy expanding the business. I'm too focused on uh, my career, on my job, on my business. I'm too busy trying to get ahead in life right now. Maybe some other time. The third man represents the person who declines God's offer of salvation on the basis of personal relationships. I can't get saved right now. It will complicate relationships in my life. Or it will complicate a valued relationship in my life. And so for this person, you have family ties, personal relationships. It keeps them from accepting God's offer of salvation. And again, the same excuses that God hears from so many uh, today. The excuse of possessions, the excuse of career, the excuse of relationships. So the offer goes out. The man sends out the offer. And all he gets back on the initial wave is just a series of excuses. Now notice in verse 21 that the servant reports all of this to his master. And the master's response is an interesting one. His response is anger. He is angry. This man that has put this feast together, he is angry over the flimsiness of these excuses in response to this great offer that he has made to his, the people around him. Now, and Jesus is saying that God is righteously angry when his offer of salvation is refused by a man, no matter what the excuse. It makes God angry to have that rejected. It's interesting, you and I were born in this world and we're born sinners. We, do, we aren't sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. They're two different categories. The one diagnosis is worse than the other. We have the worst diagnosis. But God loves us despite the fact that we're sinners. He doesn't love our sin, but He loves us and He wants to save us. And our sin doesn't make Him angry. I mean, he, he's got to deal with it. The sin, he, he, he's angry at sin, but he looks at us with compassion because he knows that's how we're born into the world. You can't change how you're born into the world. I can't change the condition that I'm born into the world in. I'm a sinner. I was born a sinner. You were born a sinner. God understands that. doesn't make him angry. What makes him angry here and what makes this different is the one thing we don't have control over. What we do with God's offer of salvation, that we have control over. And that God takes personally. So he, this man giving the feast, he was angry at that rejection. To be rejected on the basis of those excuses? And God it feels the same way for any excuse that's offered to him that says no to his son. The offer of salvation through his son. Now you think about this man and, the, and that rejection of, of salvation. It's an affront to God. It's important for us to realize that. It's an affront to God to dismiss his offer of salvation. Now you think about this man in this parable, all the work that he went to to prepare that feast, the expense, the time, the effort, the anticipation of all the people that were going to come, the desire to bless them, all the things that he put 
into that, that feast. And then to have it just be sniffed at by the population. And then you carry it over to what it's really a picture of. And you think about all of the work that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have put into our salvation. The price that's been paid. The attention to detail. All of those things. And then you think about all that's gone into it and then what an insult for it to be just sniffed at by man. It's an affront to God. And this isn't just some like wild-eyed evangelist or preacher or pastor representing God in this way. It's Jesus. It's from the mouth of Jesus driving home the point. Well, the meal's been prepared. And so the man... He's not going to let it go to waste. Salvation's been prepared. God will not allow it to go to waste. And so invitation number two occurs in verse 21 when he instructs his servant and says, Go out into the streets and the lanes of the city. Bring in the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. The master says, Let's extend the invitation to people who will appreciate it. People will be thankful to hear about it and accept it. And the first group of excuse givers probably represents the Jewish religious leaders like the lawyers and the Pharisees that were at that, present at that meal with Jesus. The second group of people probably represents men and women who are Jews, but they're considered lesser Jews by the, relig- the, the religious leaders. Like the man with a dropsy. He's a Jew, but he's physically deformed. He's got a physical ailment. So they, who, whatever Jews they would look at and say, they are ceremonially unclean or they are inferior Jews, that's who's represented in the second invitation that is, is given. And so out goes the invitation and to these group of Jews among whom Jesus was wildly popular. And sure enough, this group of people accepted the invitation in great numbers and the servant reported it to the master. But he said in verse 22, we still got room for more. Aren't you glad there was room for more beyond the Jews? <laughs> I'm glad there's room for the Gentiles. Most of us in this room are Gentiles. So invitation number three, verses 23 and 24. And so the master then instructed his servant to go out into the highways, out into the hedges, and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. And now here's the master. He widens the invitation beyond the Jews to now include the Gentiles. And so the servant goes out and he extends that invitation to all manner of Jewish or Gentile riffraff who also accepted the offer and that explains the salvation of most of us in this room. A Gentile is simply a non-Jew. In the parable, when Jesus extends this invitation by the master of the feast all the way out into the highways and the byways into the Gentiles, he's basically saying, no one's excluded from this invitation. No matter where they've been, no matter what they've seen, no matter what they've done, no matter how they were brought into this world. And the Jew, Jesus' listeners 
in that feast, they would have never dreamed that God would, have stu- would ever stoop so low as to have anything to do with a Gentile, much less invite him to a feast, much less want him in heaven, and much less look forward to fellowship over the marriage supper of the Lamb, a meal with him in heaven. Now, I don't have anything against Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. I'm not just any Gentile. I I must admit, I am in the upper 70%. I am half Scottish and half Irish. (laughs) But when the Jews looked down on the Gentiles in those days, not all Jews did, but the religious Jews did, and they considered Gentiles to be dogs. And don't hold it against the Jews for the assessment. They come from the law of Moses. They realize that man's been created in the image of God, whether Jew or Gentile. And they saw how the Gentiles lived. The sin that they gave themselves to, sins that Jews wouldn't even want in their minds, let alone practice. And they looked and they said they live like animals. And the Gentiles did. And so for the Jew, for Jesus to take this and say, God is going to, he's going to invite anyone that will accept the invitation would have been astonishing to them. The love of God, the giantness of the heart of God for the Jew and the Gentile both. The religious Jews thought heaven is just going to be filled with religious Jews. And Jesus declares, no, there won't be as many of those as you think maybe. As many as want to be there, it's going to be filled with people that are going to surprise you. It's going to be filled with a bunch of Gentiles, a bunch of riffraff that took advantage of the invitation. And the book of Acts and human history reveals that Jesus was way ahead of the curve on this. He knew exactly what would happen. And so it has happened. Notice Jesus' commentary on all of this in verse 24. He said, For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Jesus is declaring to reject God's offer of salvation is to miss heaven no matter what the excuse. Not one person ever misses out on heaven because of the sins that we have committed in this life. No one misses heaven over that. And it's too bad that so many people think that I could never go to church, God would never have anything to do with me, I could never be saved or forgiven in the light of all the things that I've done in life, all the sins that I've committed, I make everybody around me, nobody wants to be around me, I make everybody sick, I make myself sick, there's no hope for me, there's no hope in God because of the terrible sinner that that I am. And they think they're on their way to heaven on the basis of those sins, on their way to hell on the basis of those sins. Nobody goes to hell on the basis of those sins. Those are all forgivable sins. The one sin that cannot be forgiven is a lifelong rejection of the Savior that God has sent into the world to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. It's only one sin that lands people in in hell rather than in heaven. And it is a rejection of this invitation by God and a rejection of His Savior. 
And so why in the world commit the one sin that can't be forgiven? When the master of the feast and representing God in verse 17 cries out to anyone to come, anyone can get into heaven. God has made a way for everyone to get into heaven who wants to come. All that is needed is a desire to come and to one day be there with God by putting our faith in Jesus today. The passage also teaches us the danger of assuming that I'm on my way to heaven because I'm a religious person. And we need to hear that today. There are more people this morning on planet earth that will slip into the wrong side of eternity from a path of religion than ever will on the path of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. These people were religious off the graph and not one of them was saved. It doesn't, religion, it doesn't do anything. Jesus spoke to a religious man by the name of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and he said to Nicodemus, Jesus is such a straight shooter. He said, unless a man be born again, he shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Everyone in Jerusalem thought Nicodemus was on his way to heaven, that he had a pass for himself and any five people he'd want to bring with him. And he wasn't. Jesus said, you need to be born again. How's a person born again? What's a born again? We've all been born once. Our presence in the room, proof of that, a physical birth. To be born again is a spiritual birth. And it occurs when a person comes to God and says, God, I believe your assessment of me. I'm a sinner. I've been less than perfect all my life. And I believe that you're so holy and so pure, and I don't want you to be anything but holy and pure. I still want, me, I still want you to save me. I believe you're so holy and so pure that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you the very thing I've been created for. But I also believe that you love me so much that you sent your son Jesus into this world to die for me personally on that cross and to be buried and rise again on the third day. And I believe that he is the Savior and the salvation that pleases you. And so I turn from my own ways and today I put my faith in the Savior that you've sent into the world and when a person does that, the greatest miracle that occurs in human history and in the whole world occurs because at that moment, God's Holy Spirit comes into a person's life and now I'm born again by the Holy Spirit. And because the Holy Spirit is now in my life, I have the capacity to have personal relationship with God. And it's real. And it's a gift. It's free, and it's received for the asking. I don't care where you come from in terms of a secular background or a non-God background or a super hyper amazing God background. All that matters to me this morning is are you born again? Have you put your faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Because that's the way to one day be seated in that table with God, so to speak, in heaven, enjoying 
a feast with him to enjoy all of the blessings of heaven. I think that this passage really speaks to us of the danger that excuses are to us in meeting God's invitation with any excuse. And it's important to realize that. As God gives that invitation of salvation to meet it with an excuse and to realize that excuses, if I, if I, if I meet God's invitation of salvation with an excuse, what that excuse is doing is it's putting me in terrible danger. It's moving me further and further away from God and more and closer and closer because every day we live is a day closer to eternity closer and closer to spending eternity in judgment. This parable is as needed today as 2,000 years ago. Do you realize that every single person in this whole big wide world and every single person in this room who has heard the gospel and is not born again today, that at some point in time you or they responded to God's offer of salvation with some excuse. You thought it was a reason. You thought it was a good reason. But it's an excuse. And one of the great lessons of the parable is there is no good excuse that exists on the face of this planet for saying no to God's offer of salvation. That one day every excuse will be revealed for the lame, pathetic poor thing that it is. And so today, the importance of just dropping any excuses against God, used against Him and His offer of salvation to us, to throw them all to the ground, to abandon them, you don't need those to protect you from a loving God who wants to save you and give you the greatest life you can have now, to say nothing of what happens in heaven. Excuses are dangerous to you. And to throw them down today and put your faith in Jesus as your Savior and then enter into the relationship that God has for you today and the one that lasts forever and ever. That great word, single word in verse 17, the word come, for all things are now ready. What was said of a feast in the parable is true of heaven. It's true of everlasting life, a relationship with God. And the invitation is very broad today to any of us in this room and anyone in the whole wide world. The invitation is to come. There's room in that room. There's room at the table. There's still room in heaven for you to come and become a part of God's family, the important thing is to not refuse the invitation for one more day, but to take and make the right use of the invitation this morning and put your trust in heaven's Savior, in Jesus this morning. Let's pray together. The worship team would come forward. That'd be great. And as we just sit here in a spirit of quietness before the Lord in a spirit of prayer. I just want to ask there'd be one or two of us here today or maybe more. You say, I'm, I'm done. I don't, want to, I don't want to offer one up one more excuse.
I know the gospel. I've heard it in my life. And I don't want to deflect it today. Today I want to embrace it. Today I want to become God's child. I want to know God. I want a relationship with God. And I want my forever to be in God's hands. I want a safe reservation for heaven after this life. And I'm willing to turn from my old life and to turn to the life that God has for me this morning. There might be some of us who sit here this morning and that's not your category. Today's the first day you've ever heard the gospel declared to you. The good news that God saves sinners through His Son. Today's a day for you to just say, no, I don't want to offer an excuse to that. Nobody in their right mind would turn that down. I want to receive that gift from God today. And you need to do that. If you'd like to do that today, anyone, to trust in the Lord today, accept His invitation. Just raise your hand where it is you're seated so I can see you. And here's what I'm going to do to you when you do that. I'm going to lead you in a prayer to invite the Lord into your heart so this great miracle can occur in your life. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for you in your new walk with the Lord. That's all that's going to happen. So if you'd like to do that this morning, just raise your hand right where you're seated, and I'll pray for you, or pray with you, and then I'll pray for you.